Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. First off, I want to send a quick congratulations to all of the Hugo Award nominees. There are some fantastic selections this year, including a couple of nominations for our friends over at Escape Artists. In particular, a handful of credits for Pseudopod's very own Alistair Stewart, as well as nominations for Sci-Fi Podcast Escape Pod, and the fantasy podcast Podcastle, alongside some other fantastic zines like Fire Magazine, Uncanny, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Strange Horizons. Even if you haven't checked them out yourself, I suspect there's a good chance you might recognize most of those names from the bios of writers you've heard on this show. If you're not familiar with the Hugos, Think of them as the science fiction equivalent to the Stoker Awards. So, if you're into sci-fi and you need some inspiration for your to-be-read list, head over to thehugoawards.org for a look at this year's finalists. Speaking of to-be-read, another week, another great inpouring of submissions. Like a dark, viscous trickle of madness that we can't wait to pump straight into your ears. 
If you've got a story that you'd like to share, TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions is where you can find out how to do just that. And in case you need a prompt, here's a request from Pete Morsellino. Ducks. Stories about ducks. Those cute, unassuming waterfowl. I always suspected they were hiding something. Sure, geese are usually considered the terrifying ones, all aggressive and flappy and honky and stuff, but it's the quiet ones, the shy, unassuming ones, you've got to watch out for, am I right? I think you may be on to something, Pete. A special thank you goes out this week to our newest patron, Buddy Hernandez. Yours is the dark necromancy that brings this corpse to life each and every week, and we appreciate it so much. If you're not a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash tales to terrify is where you can find us and get access to perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and merch. We'd love to have you. Also, you've still got time to submit your reviews for good and offer up some feedback on the show while supporting a great cause. Visit podchaser.com and search for Tales to Terrify, then leave us a review. Every review you post on Podchaser until the end of April, whether for our show or any others, generates a donation that goes to support Meals on Wheels America. We've already had a handful of amazing listeners add their reviews for our show to Podchaser. So, if you've got a minute, and you haven't already, head on over and post a review or two for a good cause. Again, that's podchaser.com and search Tales to Terrify. This week finds us rolling into Canada's largest city, Toronto. At just shy of six million people, Toronto's known as one of the most culturally diverse cities in the world. People from all over the planet have chosen to call Toronto their home, creating a rich and colorful tapestry of ethnicities and cultures. But even with the most vibrant colors and textures on the surface, like any major city, there's darkness that lurks hidden beneath. And in our case tonight, literally beneath. Every time Sam walked through that red metal door in Bay Station, a strange sense of apprehension washed over him. He remembered visiting the subway station in his youth and being intrigued by the mismatched section of tile on the platform floor. It didn't quite match the rest of the station, and even then he'd instinctively known it didn't belong. Something about it had bothered him then, and looking back, it was the same feeling that now crawled its way down his spine as the heavy door slammed shut behind him. The door wasn't one the average public ever paid much mind to, let alone had any way to access even if they wanted to. Most people probably assumed it led to a maintenance corridor for the Toronto transit system, or maybe an employee break room. But the corridor that now echoed and reverberated with Sam's footsteps wasn't any maintenance tunnel. It was a stairwell 
a stairwell that led down into the depths below Bay Station, to the abandoned Lower Bay Station. Abandoned might not be quite the right word, though it sure felt abandoned as Sam climbed down the stairs. Bay Station above was filled with the constant buzzing energy of life, commuters headed to work, families out for a day with their kids. But closing that red door and descending into the empty station below always felt a little like diving underwater to Sam. Sometimes he'd even catch himself holding his breath. There was an energy down there, but it wasn't the warm vibration of life. The way it made his skin crawl, how it raised the hackles on his neck, it felt more like walking into a mausoleum. Maybe it was the weight of being surrounded by all that concrete, or maybe it was the sudden stillness in the air. Whatever the reason, heading down to Lower Bay Station was always the part of his job Sam liked the least. Built as an experiment by the Toronto Transit Commission in 1966, it was part of a subway expansion intended to provide additional connections between lines in the underground transit network for the growing city. But despite the best-laid plans, the station proved to be more of an inconvenience for passengers than anything. So, after just six months in operation, the line was shut down and the entrance to Lower Bay was bricked over. Now, though, the station sits just meters from the busy platform directly above. Technically, it still remains connected to the rest of the subway system, and on rare occasions, it's been used to divert trains during repair and construction of other arms of the subway line. Mostly, though, it's used as a safe place to conduct training exercises and as a location for Toronto's busy film and television industry, more often than not a stand-in for New York's subway system. That was why Sam was down there now. A film crew would be showing up the next day, and he was in charge of prepping the location for their arrival, making sure things were clean, organized, and ready to go. At a glance, the station really looked like any other. A long corridor lined with square pillars, with buzzing fluorescent tubes casting their dismal light on the tiled floor and walls. In some ways, the station was cleaner than the busy one above, far less of the litter and dirt that tends to swirl in the wake of busy human traffic. But where the tiles above were bright white, the lines at the edge of the platform, a well-maintained caution yellow, everything felt muted in the lower station. The yellow lines faded. The tiles grayed with age and neglect. Water stains cascaded down sections of bare concrete, and in places the ceiling tiles were missing, revealing the naked conduit and pipe that snaked like veins beneath. For the most part, everything looked to be in order from what Sam could tell. He picked up the few pieces of litter that had managed to make their way 
God knew how, onto the platform. There were a handful of bulbs in need of replacing, too, but he'd come back for those later. Peering down onto the tracks themselves, Sam could see even more trash had managed to find its way down onto the line. Plastic bags and flyers, mostly, but a few other items, too. The only thing worse than getting stuck on lower base station duty was having to walk the actual tracks of lower bay. Sighing, he pulled a garbage bag from the pack, crouched down, and half-jumped, half-slipped down onto the tracks. Starting at one end of the platform, he began collecting the trash that had accumulated. Aside from the constant hum of the lights and steady drone of machinery, it was eerily silent down there. But every so often, a train would rumble by above him, and every time he couldn't help but hold his breath. In the stillness, the sound was uncomfortably close, and even though he knew the station had been decommissioned decades ago, there was that nagging part of his brain that insisted 250 tons of steel was barreling down the tracks directly behind him. He'd made it a little more than halfway down the tracks when a sudden breeze began to blow from down the tunnel. It wasn't the typical oily breath he'd come to associate with the subway's ventilation system, nor was it the sharp, cool blast of air generated by a fast-moving train. It felt thicker, more organic. He lifted his head and gazed down the tunnel. There was something down there, further down the tracks, deeper within the tunnel leading out of the station. In the dim light of the tunnel, it was hard to see. He stopped and squinted his eyes. It seemed like something blowing down the tracks. A loose garbage bag or a piece of cloth? Whatever it was, it was coming closer, flowing down the darkened tunnel directly toward him. The eerie orange of the old sodium lights lining the tunnel walls made it hard to tell, but it looked like red fabric. It looked like a figure. A finger of ice trailed down his spine. The thing seemed to be moving with purpose, seemed to be fixated on him. It wasn't random and didn't jerk and start like a piece of trash on the breeze. But it didn't walk, either, didn't seem to touch the tracks, but flowed and billowed along them, hovering. Terror dug its nails deep into his chest squeezing at his heart and lungs. He was trapped, stuck on the tracks, an awkward four-foot scramble between the rails and the platform above, a scramble that would put the thing at his back and him at its mercy. It was closer now, and he could see, with soul-wrenching certainty, he'd been right. 
draped across a thin frame, flowing and billowing freely, independent of the fetid breeze, was a red dress. A fancy dress, the sort of garment you'd see worn at a swanky dinner party or high-end restaurant. But here, in the depths of an abandoned subway station, it seemed almost obscene. The figure inside was no better. Pale, skinny arms dangled limply from its sides. Long, dark hair hung down in a shaggy mane, obscuring its face. Stranger still was what hung below the dress, or rather what didn't. As the figure floated closer, Sam couldn't make out any feet. No legs beneath the hem. Just open air as it glided and bobbed down the tracks. As it approached, came within meters of the frozen, trembling Sam, the figure raised its head. Sam's mouth gaped in a silent scream, terror squeezing the breath from his lungs. The face, like the rest of its skin, was deathly pale. Its fine features were delicate, no doubt beautiful ones, but where its eyes had been, Sam gazed into two hungry onyx abysses, two shrunken and caved holes that seemed to suck what little light they could find. It tilted its head at him slightly, black sockets boring into him, threatening to swallow him whole. Suddenly, Sam found himself scrambling up onto the platform, scraping his stomach on the rough concrete. His fight-or-flight instinct had finally kicked in, and he damn sure wasn't staying down there to face that thing. He stumbled to his feet and into a run, and as he cleared the line of pillars, risked a quick glance back. The thing, uh, the woman, was gone. The tracks were empty. But that didn't mean he had any intention of slowing. He sprinted for the stairs and took them two at a time back up to the main bay station. He flew through the red service door and slammed it behind him, leaning against it, ignoring the stares and sidelong looks of the waiting passengers on the main platform. He was never going back down there again. There are many stories of sightings of the woman in the red dress in Lower Bay Station. There are also a few theories about the identity of the woman in red. Some think she was a passenger that died from being either pushed or falling from the platform during the six months the station was in operation. Others think she may be linked to the Potter's Field Cemetery that once stood on the land the station was built on. But there are no records of any such tragedy happening on the platform, and the Potter's Cemetery was moved long before the station was constructed. Either theory, I suppose, could explain her missing legs. But those eyes, well, 
that's harder to say. Regardless, I have to say, that's one character I'd rather not run into on my morning commute. Our first story for the evening comes from Josh Roundtree. Josh Roundtree's short fiction has appeared in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Realms of Fantasy, Daily Science Fiction, and A Punk Rock Future. His audio work has appeared in Escape Pod, Podcastle, and Pseudopod. Fairwood Press will publish his new short fiction collection, Fantastic Americana, this summer. Visit his website at joshroundtree.com or reach out to him on Twitter at josh underscore roundtree. Links are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Josh Roundtree's Snowfather, first published in Horror Library 6, April 2017. Alan. The Huns call the beast Snowfather. That's what McGowan says anyway. I don't know a word of German, so I'll have to take his word for it. I wasn't part of the expeditionary force yet when the Christmas truce happened. That's when they told him. Some days I wish I'd been there for that. It seems fanciful, Germans and Brits simply taking a few days off from the war, Trading stories, well-wishes, cigarettes, kicking around a football. The shelling had long since continued before I found my way to the trench. Scenes like that are difficult to reconcile with the pitted ruins surrounding me now. McGowan says he brought up the subject of the beast straight away, and to a man the Huns swore they weren't responsible. But a thing like that doesn't come from nowhere, does it? I've heard stories of Germany and her scientists. I'm sure some of them are mad. It would take a madman to set a creature of that sort loose in the world, even in times of war. Werner. Ypres is a hell. Is it not bad enough that the very land seems hungry to swallow us all? Must we be hunted by the black soul of our enemies made flesh? I killed him again last night. A closer encounter than ever before. I dread night patrols more and more. The way the land pitches and rolls, even when the guns have grown cold and the shells stopped falling. The world is white ice and barbed wire, and a man can lose himself in bottomless craters and abandoned foxholes. No matter how many of your brothers walk at your side, we are each alone in that terrible place. Perhaps it is the quiet that unnerves me most. War should never be quiet. I think it is the purity of the silence that draws Snowfather out again and again. The creature is chaos, and he cannot countenance even a moment's peace. Alan 
McGowan was carried back to the trench with his legs missing. His fellows live off pure terror, and I refuse to look into their eyes or ask exactly what's happened to him. A private, who looks even younger than me, assists the doctor in the useless task of dressing McGowan's stumps and moving him from the front to the relative safety of the rear field hospital. I whisper a prayer to the Saviour that my body is never returned in such a state. I'd rather be left for the snowbanks to claim. Being brought back would only make me a cautionary tale, a horrifying example of what happens to men who find themselves targets of the beast. And make no mistake, it was the beast got McGowan. Easy enough to blame his condition on shelling, but the beast was moving last night. I could hear its howl swelling up from no man's land like the wind itself had grown furious at the world. Besides, there was no shelling from dawn to dusk. The world was silent apart from the ceaseless whistling and pounding in my ears. I hear the big guns even when they're silent. The sound never leaves, though I'm veteran enough to know when the shells are real and when they're only in my head. A few days hence and I'll be rotated away from the front for a week. Until then I spend my days pressed as tightly as I can into the frozen walls of the trench, trying to stay invisible, praying I'm not noticed and chosen to go over the top. If I'm asked, I may have to refuse. Better labelled a coward than to face Snowfather. Werner I don't know why we call him Snowfather. When the monster first appeared, the name made its way through the trenches like slow-creeping gas, filling in the nooks and crannies of every man's mind until no other designation would suit. We all have our theories on the monster. Mutters is perhaps the most implausible and terrifying. He does not place responsibility for the monster on the British. He believes it is a creature of winter. It came on with the season, a bleak and brutal herald of the earth's anger at her children and our warring. We leave scars on her flesh as never before, gouging out bits and pieces of her until the body is little more than ruined meat. We break her peace with gunfire, bathe her in blood and piss. We choke the life from her with the toxins we loose on our enemies. She is our mother, and she has grown tired of our willful ways. So she sends a monster to deliver her stern message. We are children in need of discipline, and now Snowfather has come to teach us the error of our ways. Mutter is a fool. But fools are not without insight. I choose to believe our enemies control the monster. It's easier to hate them than to hate ourselves. Alan They're sending me over the top tonight. They're sending me into the land of the beast. I'm given the order and I find myself nodding. I don't know myself as well as I'd imagined. It would appear I value pride over life. Werner I lead the patrol. They are wanting for brave and experienced men. I am neither, but I come closer than most. And 
I have seen Snowfather. I have killed him many times. These others have not. They still believe that bullets, shrapnel and gas commands a greater portion of fear, but I have seen the way these terrors seem to fade away in the cold, implacable presence of the Brit's monster, as if nothing else can harm you when faced with such a singular threat. I've smelled the dead meat stench of the thing, the sudden sharp tang of musk and mould that signals his approach. I've seen the way he lumbers, half unseen through the blowing snow. I've stared unflinching into his silvery saucer eyes and felt the blast of cold air from the spread of his wings. I've killed him a hundred times, but he keeps coming back. The thought of the thing begins my heart racing and I feel like I'm going to suffocate inside my gas mask. I check the seals every few minutes despite the discomfort. Careless men have coughed up their lungs in front of me for forgetting to check their masks. I swell shut while blood pours from nostrils like beer from a keg. Men lose themselves to hellish horrors, and loved ones welcome them to their graves. The gas is to be feared, the mask to be respected. As for Snowfather, there's not enough fear and respect to be had in the world. Alan I understand terror now. The trenches are nothing compared to a trek through the snowbound night, over, under, and through the great crevices that cover the landscape like waiting graves. I've never been so cold. These men with me, they faced this fear before, and they do so now with grim resolve that I can't match. I was made for finer things than war, and I'm a fool for ever allowing myself to be sent to this place. We're supposed to be looking for Germans, taking note of movements, advances, changes of any kind in their disposition. But it's impossible to make out anything in the sudden squall of snow. The others are like raves in the unforgiving blackness of the storm, and I search desperately for the invisible moon overhead in a futile attempt to get my bearings. I step, stumble into a crater, and stifle a howl of outrage. When I climb back out, my fellows are gone, swallowed by the landscape, and they don't even seem to have missed me. The beast's howl is borne up by the wind, and I feel the air grow heavy as my death approaches. Werner We encounter a patrol of Tommies and exchange fire. Bullets sing through the air, and I know this must please the monster. I hate the punch of bullets into flesh but at least it's not my flesh, and at least all the Tommies are face down in the snow by its end. Two of my men still stand at my side. I instruct them to search the bodies for food, and I watch for movements in the wasteland. Snowfather is crafty. He takes me by surprise. The tread of his footfalls against the crusty earth is the only warning I have before he is in front of me. 
The monster is terrible, as always, and he screams at me with the voice of a thousand bloodied and dying comrades. I stumbled back with a veil, startling my companions. Then I take aim and begin firing. Alan. There is screaming in German and machine gun fire, but it all fades into the background of reality as the beast tears into my chest with its claws. Snowfather's face is inhuman, featureless, pulling in and out of focus as the snow spins around us and more and more of its claws find their way inside me, digging for my heart, my lungs, taking me apart with the practiced ease of a born killer. I sweep back the folds of my trench coat in a futile attempt to bring my gun to bear on the beast, but the weapon falls from my grip as the wind spreads the coat wide around me like the wings of a fallen angel. The beast comes at me again, and a misstep puts me at the bottom of another crater. Above, Snowfather peers down at me with round, empty eyes, perhaps convinced I am dead. The beast is right. There are no doctors here, no eager lads willing to lift me up and carry me back to my life. Just cold earth and the Hun's monster. I was wrong to think I'd want my body to remain here, I wish desperately for it to be returned to the trenches, returned home, no matter what state it's in. But already the snow begins its steady advance, and there's no one left but the beast to escort me quietly into the afterlife. Werner I stare down into the shell crater and see the dead Brit. The eyepieces of my gas mask are fogged but I can still tell that his chest has been torn apart by the monster. The carnage looks eerily like a nest of bullet wounds. We must have interrupted the monster while he took the body apart. I try not to consider what this means, that Snowfather is as much an enemy of the Brits as he is of my people. Who then, or what, sends the monster against us? I'm all over Mutter's theory again, but I don't wish to accept it. My companions have forgotten all caution, consumed by the terror of the moment. I fear at least one of them has thrown his mask, and another is wailing continuously about the monster and the way he spread his wings wide as he made to attack me. My companion is convinced the monster is a demon from hell, and who am I to argue that? I'm only satisfied that I have killed him again. I stand quietly in a world of black blowing madness, heaving for air as the filter grows clogged in my mask. Time to leave. I mouth a few words for the monster's latest victim, then command him to the mercy of creation. We are old men. We must all face our monsters. I do not consider myself a better man for killing the creatures this Tommy was unable to best. I was simply lucky, and I hope it will remain so. For I am the prey. Always the prey. As long as I remember this and keep it close, I will see the other side of this war.
That was Josh Roundtree's Snowfather, as read by Graham Dunlop. Graham Dunlop is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He's the former co-editor and current tech barbarian of the fantasy podcast Podcastle, which, as I mentioned, was just nominated for a Hugo. And he used to be the host of the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story tonight comes to us from Trevor Tolliver. Trevor Tolliver is an English professor living in Southern California and the proud dad of four adopted sons. His short stories have appeared in several anthologies, including Sharkosaurus and, in the upcoming collection, Campfire Macabre. His story, Don't Play the Song on D6, appeared on episode 284 of Tales to Terrify back in 2017. Trevor is also the author of the book You Don't Own Me, The Life and Times of Leslie Gore, which was a number one seller on Amazon. For fun, he enjoys reading, writing, visiting haunted places, and burying the neighbors where no one will ever find them. I hope me mentioning that on the podcast doesn't complicate things for you, Trevor. Listen with me, children of the night to Trevor Tolliver's Cornstalkers, 
a Tales to Terrify original. The police cruiser pulled into the crushed pebble driveway ahead of the Lexus. The sheriff's SUV was a familiar sight around town, but the luxury car, as black and lustrous as a panther, was garishly out of place in a farming community that rested all its pride in tractors, plows, and dirt-streaked pickup trucks. Success in this green stretch of central California was measured in the harvest you yielded and the number of calluses on your hands. Nobody in Owl's Glen, where people were as humble as turkey gravy and Dutch apple pie, liked a show-off. Especially Sheriff Simpson, who had told Ronan Metzger in the Raven sedan purring behind him that he could easily complete this task by himself. Simpson could help take the sting off the day a bit, be a comfortable and gentle old friend who sympathized with the couple's plight, walk them out, not shove them out. No, Metzger insisted on trailing along wanting to peer over the sheriff's shoulder when he lowered the plunger on them, wanting to see the crushing rock's light of defeat on their faces, remind them that Metzger had won. The sheriff parked, stuck the folded court paperwork in his chest pocket, and stepped out of the vehicle, adjusting his Stetson. Where Simpson was tall and lean and handsome as a cowboy in an old spaghetti western, Metzger was a pudgy little mole of a man who squinted his eyes against the white late morning glare of summer and farm country. He was balding from the forehead back and combed what strands of hair he had left over the dome of his skull and long, furry fingers. Square, unfashionable glasses covered the top half of his face like goggles, and his piggy pink skin, city pallor. Farmers joked about the weekend tourist who cruised up the dusty highway and stopped at every roadside stand to stuff their cars with fresh avocados, cherries, and strawberries, suggested a man who shunned the sunlight for the electric glow of a laptop screen. The day was already into the 80s and promised to broil them with more dry heat. And Metzger, his lanky assistant who emerged from the passenger side of the Lexus, looked miserable in their sleek, tailored suits. And the assistant... Some fresh-out-of-college lackey named Brett, the stink of ethics textbooks still heavy on him, looked as shiny and fresh as a soap bubble. He wrinkled his nose at the hard punch of fertilizer. Ugh, he muttered. That smell. At 15 acres, it smells pretty sweet to me. Uh, No need to rub salt into their wounds, Sheriff Simpson said. Their footsteps crunched as he led the pair to the porch of the trim and tidy craftsman farmhouse. Its peak blocked out the sun, and revealed a nest of squeaking baby birds in the cool dimness beneath Neve. The Johansons are decent, solid people. You already got what you wanted, didn't you? Ah, Sheriff, am I detecting a bit of uh, resentment in your tone? They're a long-time family, Simpson replied. He glanced at the U-Haul moving van squatting at the side of the house like an orange tabby cat napping in the shade. Nobody around here is happy to see them go. Out in the far left field... Small in the distance, a dark figure stood over the fuzzy rows of golden wheat. 
the loose fabric over its outstretched arms rippling slightly in the breeze like a sail. Brett froze, his hands on the post at the bottom of the porch, a foot elevated in midair over the bottom step. Once he realized it was only a scarecrow, he relaxed and fought a smile. Brett had been raised on Starbucks chains, neon-scorched big-box electronic stores, and playgrounds drenched in the shadows cast by high-rise apartment buildings. In Brett's experience, amber waves of grain only appeared in corny songs. Simpson rapped lightly on the screen door with the back of his hand. Good morning, Sheriff, came a man's cheerless voice inside the murky house. Come in. Morning, Henry. The air inside was warm and thick with sorrow. The scuffs and nicks in the hardwood floor showed the movement of heavy furniture, and pale squares and rectangles on the wallpaper outlined the ghostly remains of picture frames. Simpson recalled several Christmas parties here, where he and his wife had sunk into the cushy sofa cushions with mugs of hot cocoa in their laps, Brenda Lee rocking around a Christmas tree on the stereo in the background. Just a memory now, which would last longer than the house itself. Metzger's wrecking ball would see to that. Suppose you know why I'm here. Henry Johnson was wrapping the last of their dinner plates in newsprint paper. Except for the cardboard boxes that were already sealed and stacked like building blocks, the kitchen was bare. We're just about done here, Sheriff. This is the last of it, just under the deadline. The old man's eyes, exhausted from years of hard outdoor labor and from his more recent battle with Pacific Manufacturing Incorporated, flickered at the two men in suits and dropped back down to his task. How's Mary Beth holding up? About what you'd expect, Henry said in a sigh. She's over crying in the powder room now. She'll get going, pack in a box, and stumble over something. Some photo or trinket or some sweet thing. And it sets off the waterworks. Got 45 years taped up in these cartons. Not waiting to be introduced into the conversation. The sheriff had his back to him, seemed to be shielding the old man. Metzger skittered around Simpson to inject himself. Now, let me assure you, we really do appreciate you honoring the agreement in so timely a fashion. We hope the stipend we provided helped cover any moving costs you incurred. Rubbing it in with glee. The local papers, sympathetic towards the three families affected by the land acquisition and vilifying the impersonal Goliath Weapons Company, had already reported in melodramatic detail how the Johansons, as well as the farmers on either side of their property, lost their entire life savings and legal fees to try and fight the takeover and retain the land that had been in their respective families for decades. After the Johansons went to auction and sold off the heavy farm machinery they'd worked and saved up years to purchase in an effort to stave off the lawyers, folks around the village tried giving them money, tried relieving some of the pain. Charity, the Johansons had called it, and they weren't having any of that. Besides, they thought about it, prayed on it, and the courts ruled against them. One of the tenants of a farmer was knowing when he was licked. Big corporation mopping up small-town farmers, raping the land for money. But they think they wash their sins away when they throw a few pennies at the little people they injure, Henry said to Simpson, pretending Metzger wasn't standing right there. Stealing is the new way of doing business in America, isn't it, Sheriff? Now, Mr. Johansson, Metzger said. Not stealing. Eminent domain. And, I assure you, completely legal. Now, the government has no problem taking cash money for old land when the fine folks playing in the dirt default on their property taxes. This is industrial progress at its finest, Mr. Johansson. 
Our factory, warehouse, shipping facilities, I mean, they're going to employ hundreds of people on the federal payroll. What can be more American than that? And we get kicked out of the home we built ourselves, lose our crops, get separated from the only town and friends we've ever known. Mary Bath spat as she entered the kitchen from somewhere within the gloom of the house. Got pregnant four times. Miscarried all four times. Buried my babies on this property. Her eyes were puffy and rimmed in red, and she dabbed at them with a crumpled tissue. Her husband frowned and shook his head, signaling to her not to engage with their guest. And for all those woes, you were rewarded handsomely, as were your neighbors who weren't so terribly adverse to the checks they received for their worthless tracks of dirt and weeds, Metzger countered. I believe my associate here sent you a sizable check in an amount much higher than that at which your property was actually valued, which, I might add, you wasted no time in cashing. Because we had nothing else, Mary Beth said, her voice unsteady and livid with tears. Brett couldn't look at her and trained his eyes on the floor. But you have plenty, haven't you? Metzger said. Probably more than you know what to do with. You buy a new patch of land, plant yourself some grapes. You bottle and sell your own wine, just like the other happy little vintners up and down the coast who hawk a little homegrown local color at passerbys. Believe it or not, Henry said, speaking directly to Metzger for the first time. I feel sorry for you. We know we'll be okay. You've been through a lot worse that we thought we wouldn't come back from. But we surround ourselves with good people. We know who we can count on. We learned over the years that we can endure. And I don't think you ever got that, sir. You seem to be just as happy hurting others as Mary Beth and me feel when we get hugs from the friends we pass up to the village that we ain't seen in some time. Must be a sad way to live. <laughs> oh, well, I do sure appreciate the homespun corn pone lecture, Mr. Johansson. But I believe you needed to be out by noon, and according to my wristwatch, you're ten minutes past the deadline. Metzger grinned and turned to Simpson. Sheriff, I believe these nice people are trespassing on my private property. Simpson wanted nothing more than to grab his pistol and club the fat little ferret in the back of his head. And Metzger seemed to feel the hatred radiating from everyone in the house like a toxic cloud seemed to feed off it like a Venus flytrap thirsts for blood. But the sheriff, checking his temper and sudden throbbing pang for violence, just sighed, frowned, and said to his old friend, Well, Henry, I guess we best ought to get these loaded up into your truck. The Johansons piled their arms with whatever loose items they could carry on their own, and Simpson was nice enough to grab the red handcart stacked with cartons and wheel it outside. And even Brett, against his employer's silent admonishments, lent a mutinous hand and carried a box of silverware and plastic cups out to the van so Mary Beth wouldn't have to try and lift anything except her battered spirit. Out on the back porch, Metzger leaned against the rail, taking in a lungful of warm, dusty air, as if he appreciated the rich, bittersweet scent of soil, bark, and grain. Soon... What he viewed as a dry, barren farmland would become a concrete tumor beside the highway, the churning thrum and grease of enterprise happening behind its cinder-block walls. But the sprawling, make-believe complex he was imagining, as he slowly panned across the expanse of dirt yard with the crosshatch of clothesline in the warped, weather-worn barn, was interrupted when his gaze settled on the scarecrows out in the distance. Three of them altogether perched on their wooden crosses that formed a wide semicircle around the expanse of property, like vigilant sentinels. 
And what about your friends here, Mr. Johansson? Pointing across the vista. Are they uh, coming along with you? Henry glanced over his shoulders at the scarecrows. He turned back to the sheriff and the two bumpkins. And perhaps it was a trick of the sunlight and the midday shadows that raised their facial features in high relief. Seemed to share a fleeting, secret smile. No, sir, he said. They're staying right here. Whatever you think about it, this is very fertile land, Mr. Metzger. And those good old boys watch it over for us. If you want them gone, you gotta move them yourself. Though Metzger was too dense to pick up on the vague whiff of menace in the statement, Brett felt the tingling icicle drip down the back of his neck that, despite the encroaching heat, caused a startling rash of goose flesh across his chest and arms. As the young assistant watched the sheriff's vehicle lead the lumbering moving van down the gravel drive to the tar of the highway and out of sight over the next hill, he kept wishing they would stall or think of some reason to turn around and come back. Being around Metzger was bad enough, but the deep silence that fell over the flat land and the sudden sense of desolation and loneliness in the empty house, and especially those brooding scarecrows out in the fields, forced a phrase to skitter across Brett's mind like the scrape of dead, dry leaves, something he had uttered when he was a small child and last afraid. I want to go home. Well, boy, let's uh, take a look at what we bought, Metzger said to break the stillness. He tramped across the dirt courtyard, shielding his eyes with one hand and using the other to signal the barn. Admin building will go about there, and the factory will... He turned to his right and stopped. His daydream stalled by a fourth scarecrow posted at the edge of the clearing, dangling over the thick hedge of dry cornstalks. A bird was perched on one of the straw man's outstretched arms, cawing and tilting its blue-black head as Metzger approached. He shooted away chuckling up at the scarecrow's burlap face. A shadow from the brim of its hat fell over its forehead, giving its fathomless eyes the impression of a scowl. <sighs> Looks like nothing did its job well on this farm, eh? Metzger leaned on the post until it was dislodged from the gravel and fell, coughing up a plume of dirt. He used the side of his polished shoes to punt the ragdoll's torso around the courtyard until nothing was left of the stuffing that had given the scarecrow's old work shirt the full rounded shape but a muddled heap of hay and straw and broken sticks that the hot breeze stirred and dispersed. Ah, no effort at all, Brett. The demolition crew will have fun mowing the rest of these things down. He motioned to the trio of figures lining up the fields but froze. Brett turned too and fear bloomed hot in his chest as if he'd gulped a shot of whiskey. The wooden crosses were there, rising up from the fields like rusted grave markers, but the scarecrows were gone. Sensing that the young man's terror was equal to his own, Metzger swallowed and said, sputtering, Look, I, it's, it's the wind. They were blown down in the wind. There was just barely enough breeze to ripple the legs of their slacks and to kick up tiny whirls of dust along the ground. And, of course, the air was not moving enough to knock the mannequins down. All at once, Brett said, derailing Metzger's flawed logic. Bunch of hicks, Metzger grumbled. They probably rounded up some redneck buddies to try and scare us. Get a little bit of backwoods revenge before we go. Brett, Metzger said, his tone more commanding and assured. Go check on the outer field and see if there are people out there. I'll look over in the barn. No way, I'm not going out there, Brett said, folding his arms across his chest like a childish show of defiance. Fine, Cubby, you check the barn and I'll go out in the field. Embarrassed but relieved, 
Brett nodded and waded through a patch of white and pale orange pumpkins, cautiously stepping between their thick and twisted vines. He glanced once more over his shoulder as his boss, fuming, plunged down one of the aisles of low-growing crops, heading for the taller cornstalks swaying like fur in the breeze. Brett sighed, craned his neck up to take in the full height of the barn, its old chip paint bleached from years of sunlight and western heat and crouched through the weeds as he began his search of the exteriors. Drenched in sweat and whispering obscenities, Metzger trudged through the forest of dry, blanched corn that reached feet above the top of his head. With the midday sun roasting him from directly above the field, no shadows offered him cool respite from its rays, and he swatted at bugs that dive-bombed his ears and nostrils. Damn it, he hissed, slapping at his neck. God damn hell on earth! He glared at the empty wooden cross that marked the perimeter of the Johansson's property. Goddamn white trash, he thought, irritated at the day's unexpected change of course, playing these foolish games with the local yokels when he should be. Something in the distance, somewhere up ahead and to the right, behind a wall of cornstalks, a heavy rustling and crunching, just loud enough and long enough to stop Metzger in his tracks, but just not enough to pinpoint the source of the sound frozen. Metzger's eyes darted through the undulating waves of beige. Leaves whispered in the gentle drafts. The air throbbed with a choir of buzzing, clicking insects. I know you're here, Metzger shouted, his voice bursting through the ambient sounds like the shriek of a train whistle. You might as well come out. You're trespassing on private property. Metzger almost jumped out of his magnani leather oxfords when a shadowy figure, tall and thick, shambled somewhere too close to him. He spun to identify the stranger who had dared to come that near, instinctively lifting an arm to sock an attacker. Almost laughing in horror, Metzger thought. And who the hell do you think you're gonna knock out? You've never thrown a punch in your life. Nothing but the swaying corn and the singing cicadas. In the distance. The barn. Brett. The lazy quiet was interrupted by the sudden throaty roar of some kind of machinery. Below the belch of the motor, Metzger could have sworn he heard another sound, a scream, desperate, almost womanly. As fast as his stubby legs could carry him, Metzger darted through the yellow field. In his periphery, off to his right, as he reached the wide clearing that separated the house and the barn, he caught another figure emerging from the tall grass and scaling the steps to the back porch. Ignoring the presence of the stranger, Metzger tore open the barn's double doors and was blasted by the metallic rumble. He blinked to adjust to the faint light that crept through the narrow slats in the barn's walls. His breathing shallow and burning, Metzger coughed and hawked up phlegm and dirt. And the barn reeked of straw and mold, and the manure from the vacant stalls that Metzger now clung to in order to stand on tissue paper knees. In the gloom of the back of the barn, an industrial wood chipper smoked and belched, its engine running, though its task was complete. In a heap on the muddy floor was a pile of mulch and twigs, but the sawdust was sopping and glistening, and stunk of copper. Metzger narrowed his eyes and identified bits of bark, bits of hay, bits of gold-striped silk tie, bits of bone, bits of skin and body fat, bits of bread. Metzger's stomach pitched and he retched on the floor of one of the stalls. He grasped at post to hurl himself out of the barn. Before crossing the threshold into the sunshine, he grabbed a shovel hanging on the wall. 
If he had to bash the skulls of a hundred of those hillbillies to get to his car in the driveway, he was happy to oblige. Clutching the handle of the shovel like a baseball bat, Metzger crept around the side of the Johansson house where he could see the rear bumper of the Lexus coming into view. He stopped and narrowed on the tires. They'd been flayed open, but his exit was blocked when, in front of Metzger, a tall man, scowling, lumbering, and carrying a scythe across his broad chest, came bounding around the corner at him. The stranger's gait was fast, his movements jerky on inhumanly bowed legs. And before he turned to flee, Metzger gaped at the creature, assessing his attacker. Is he crippled? Why does he run like that? Metzger bolted around the back of the house again and hopped onto the porch without using a single stair. He nearly wrenched the screen off its hinges, stammered through the kitchen door, slamming it and latching it shut. Mother of God, what was that thing? It's a man, one of the neighbors, his sober, practical voice responded. Metzger staggered through the house to the front door. The car was only yards away now. He could still get onto the roads on axles if he needed to. Laying a trembling hand on the doorknob to unlatch the lock, he caught movement in the narrow beaded window beside the door. Another dark figure was standing just outside the door, but was leaning slightly to the side to peek at the captive inside the house. A glint of light sparkled on the edge of an axe. Through the opaque glass, Metzger could just barely make out a huge black eye socket. A black, empty hole. From one of the bedrooms in the bowels of the house, a window shattered, followed by the sound of rustling as something with weight crawled through the open space. Whatever it was, Metzger heard it give a low grunt. He turned on the balls of his feet and hobbled into the kitchen just as a pane of glass in the door exploded inward and a long arm and a dirty flannel shirt reached inside, fumbling for the lock. Metzger lifted the shovel and brought it crashing down onto the arm, but the stranger didn't flinch. It was as if the man outside the door somehow felt no pain at such a blow. The door blew open and slammed against the countertop, and the frame was filled with a hulking man in coveralls. Tufts of straw budded from holes in his shirt between the buttons and sprouted from his floppy shirt collar, and beneath his droopy cloth sun hat, his face, its face, wasn't human flesh, but a wrinkled slab of animal hide, stitched and creased into what was attempting to pass as a man, but it had weathered and contorted over time into a mask of rage. In its other arm was the scythe. Behind him, a floorboard cracked and whined. Shuffling like a zombie out of the darkness of the rear hallway and into the kitchen came another of the scarecrows, strangers, a pitchfork slung over its right shoulder. As they surrounded him, Metzger took swings with a shovel, but the impacts were absorbed with no resistance. He tried to meet their eyes, but theirs were hollow yet piercing, vacant yet seeing. He backed up bumped into the creature in the hallway and was certain, and would swear to it with his hand raised to the god in whom he suddenly believed and hoped would rescue Metzger from this horror, that he could hear rasping, wheezing, breathing, coming from the scarecrow's chest. And in that final moment in the kitchen, before insanity sheathed him in a cozy, painless shock, one fleeting voice of reason squealed out from the furthermost recess of what remained in his mind. You can't kill them, old boy. You can't kill what was never alive. At dusk, ribbons of deep purple and coral streaked across the lowering sky over Owl's Glen. 
Sheriff Simpson spied the Lexus in the Johansson's driveway and wondered why that corporate ass and his lapdog would still be at the farm this late in the evening. He pulled off the road and parked behind Metzger's car. Getting no response from his knocking at the front door, Simpson strolled around the side of the house and stopped at the thick figure dangling from a wooden cross speared into the ground in the middle of the courtyard. In the waning light, the sheriff recognized that Metzger character by the slick suit and the fancy shoes, but not by much else. The man had been gutted. His entrails spilled out in a mound at his feet, and the cavity had been stuffed with straw and twigs. His arms were knotted to the horizontal arms of the crucifix with twine. A crow sat on the man's forearm, gleefully pecking at the bleeding, meaty fingers. Simpson thought Metzger's head had been tied into place, but he leaned closer and saw the tip of the vertical pole had been thrust through the base of Metzger's skull and protruded from his mouth. Simpson fished a pack of cigarettes from his breast pocket and lit one up. He tossed the match at the bottom of the cross, kicking some loose straw around the base to feed the flames. It's almost a shame, Simpson said to the cadaver, his nostrils seared by the acrid stench of rotting meat. <laughs> you were warned, Mr. Metzger. This is very fertile land. That was Trevor Tolliver's Cornstalkers, as read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matt McFly. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs. But it's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, 
Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we desecrate hollowed ground with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.